Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. What's up, monkeys? Monkey Dan here, and welcome to the Live Wild or Die podcast, or the Derek Sivers podcast. This episode, it was an honor to get to talk to Derek, and we talked about a ton of different things. We talked about being a creator versus a consumer. We talked about struggle, creating purpose, travel, parenting, education, wildness, unlearning, and much more. For me, Reading Derek's books and listening to him speak, it makes me question my questions and ultimately ask better questions, at least I hope. And I've always appreciated how deeply Derek examines life. And as I've heard Derek say many times now, it's not about him, the speaker. It's about the person listening to him that matters most. For myself, being that person listening to Derek do TED Talks, podcasts, or reading his plethora of articles, as well as his book, has made a significant positive benefit to my life journey, and I suspect the same is true for many of you listening. So, thanks, Derek. And lastly, I just want to introduce my company, Monkey. We make devices that allow you to work out anywhere, and in the spirit of being open source, we have full DIY instructions for all of our products on our website, and our app is 99% free. So essentially, you can become a monkey for free. All right, should we do this? Oh, hell yeah. Here we go. Everyone, I am extremely excited to have the wild man, Derek Sivers, on the podcast. Derek, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Dan. It's fun to be here. I <laughs> like what you're doing and I like your questions. So uh, looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, I kind of built everything off of, you know, I went through your old articles, books I've read of yours and just, you know, kind of took concepts and maybe tried to look at it from a different angle or was inspired by a lot of things you had said. So um, hopefully it kind of builds upon a previous foundation. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was, so being a creator versus a consumer. And I think it's okay. it's generally really easy for people to be a consumer most of the time. This could be buying things. This could be spending hours on social media apps, surfing the web. And I think even visiting places like national parks or traveling can be consumptive in nature. And in general, I think being a consumer is generally easier than creating, which is generally much more difficult. So what has fueled you to be a lifelong creator? You just said it, didn't you? It's, it's the creating is more difficult. But what I've found is that that means the difference between deep happy versus shallow happy. Um, I think about this a lot. Like, Eating ice cream is shallow happy, but being lean and fit because you didn't eat the ice cream is deep happy. Um, watching a movie is shallow happy, but making a movie is deep happy. It's the harder thing that gives you the deeper satisfaction. Uh, and I think I've just ever since I was a teenager or something, I've just had this approach where I think that work is more fun than fun. <laughs> okay. And then what would you suggest 
to people that find themselves stuck in this consumption mode that want to become more creative or at least more productive? Oh, I think kill it. Like just delete the consumption mode. Cancel your Netflix account. Turn off your internet. If you still find it too addictive, uh, I find it useful to actually go over to the broadband modem itself and like unplug it from the wall. Um, my laptop doesn't have Wi-Fi in it. Like I just, I never enabled that driver. So the only way I can connect my laptop to the internet is by plugging in the ethernet cable. Like things like that. Um, it's the same techniques that you would use as uh, someone who wants to kick heroin or something. Like, <laughs> don't be gentle. It's the enemy. I really treat things like Netflix or video games as the enemy. Like, these are giant obstacles to creativity. Well, I think framing it as that that enemy, that changes that I think that helps change the behavior in a sense of just you're instead of like, Oh, this is something that's distracting or, Oh, I probably shouldn't do that. When you frame it more extremely as an enemy, I think that that can help with that mindset. Yeah, it helps me. I mean, everybody has, it's funny. I know some very productive people that also play video games. I don't know how they do it, but for me, no, I just have to be black and white and make it the enemy. Sure. Well, and then, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time. I was a um, a wilderness ranger for several seasons. So I essentially lived out in the wild and, um, you know, I was totally disconnected and it never made me, I didn't miss having the internet or my phone or anything like that. So I think I find it, I encourage people to, you know, go, you know, off the grid for lack of a better statement. And in general, folks seem to find that quite, um, quite beneficial. Mm-hmm. I love it too. So what, what do you find exceptionally beneficial to be a consumer of? Daydreams. Um, daydreams of alternate futures. Daydreams of luxury. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, I'm biased because literally this morning I woke up wishing that I was on the Kapiti coast of New Zealand where I used to live. And I was wishing that I had a little icy cold pool and a super hot pool so I could go back and forth between them outside. Like I, I just have this specific spot in mind. There isn't an existing hot and cold pool there now, but there's like this specific spot on the coast where I spent a lot of time. And I just found myself missing at that this morning and just wishing that there were like outdoor cold and hot tubs there that I could just sit in and enjoy the outdoors, but being in these tubs. So this is, you know, it's like five 30 in the morning. I wake up and for some reason, this is my first thought. Maybe I was having a dream about it, but instead of thinking that I need to go there and buy that, I just indulged in picturing it vividly. Like just putting myself there in my mind and just mm. feeling the endorphins and feeling the joy of how that would feel. And I, in my mind, I really experienced it. And then it made me double happy because I thought, you know, this is so much better than actually what buying a house, buying land, digging holes, pouring concrete into it, using a ton of water and then maintaining it forever. I can just daydream it, you know? So 
yeah, that was totally consumption. But to me, that's a good thing to consume is consuming your daydreams. But I also do the same thing with all of my alternate futures, right? Like I often play out alternate futures in my head. Like if there's something that I think I want, I'll vividly imagine myself having it and enjoying it. But then I also fast forward and I vividly imagine myself growing tired of it, feeling guilty about it, feeling regret, wishing that I would have rented instead of bought this thing that I'm only going to enjoy for a little while until the novelty wears off. And then when I'm done, I think, well, great. Now I don't need to buy that thing. I just had a fun daydream. But it feels like I don't watch hardly any videos of any sort. I don't watch YouTube. I don't have a Netflix account. I don't do that. But I spend a lot of my life watching these movies in my head so that's something i think it's good to consume so you essentially kind of go through this hedonistic adaptation process all in your mind both the excitement <laughs> of the purchase and then and then the fact that it and then the wearing out so then you actually don't have to do anything that's a genius tactic <laughs> it's also just come on i mean i'm i'm 50 i've been around a bit i know how this goes sure it's like more too many times I have bought the thing and enjoyed it for a week and then not so much the second week and then not at all by the sixth week. And then I think, why did I, why did I do that? So now, you know, after doing that enough, now I can just, I can imagine how that would go. Is all creating created equal? Oh, good question. Uh, for our sake, yeah. Um, meaning, it's a good thing to believe, yes. Like, just like someone shouldn't skip exercising because someone told them that body weight exercise isn't as good as barbell exercise, right? Like, so if we start categorizing some kinds of creating as better than other creating, well, then people will use that as yet another subtle excuse to not create at all, right? Like people who use that as an excuse to not exercise because they think, well, I can't do the best exercise, so never mind, I'll do none. So yes, uh, creating a circle with a crayon, uh, creating a robot <laughs> with Lego Boost, uh, creating a song with two words and six notes, uh, creating a staged photo of your friend, any of it, you know, creating sandcastles, creating a podcast, creating a business, or even creating a conversation. It's all good creation. Just go make whatever interests you in the moment and don't judge it as any less worthy than any other kind of creation. I love it, man. And, you know, I, I was reading anything you want and you talked about, you know, how you can help someone today if you wanted to start like this, you know, enlightened school. And I've heard, I've done it, I'm super guilty of it myself, but I've had heard friends say this, that, you know, they need to get, you know, maybe they want to start a podcast or video production or whatever. They need to get this high-end equipment, whereas they could use their phone <laughs> to record the first episode, you know, and I, I was, I was guilty of that myself. So, it's, um, that's something, something is always better than nothing. And, um, 
yeah, I just, I, I think that's a lot of people want to go from A to Z without those, those incremental steps in between. So you got to go B after A. Also, isn't that tied together with just like this consumer desire? It's like, Hey, I think I'm going to, like you said, start podcasting. Therefore I need the best mic and the best this, the best that it just becomes like, great. Now you have, you've just validated, you've rationalized another reason to consume stuff. You know, when I see these guys that are on these like $10,000 bicycles, even though they're just like weekend cyclists, you know, they, they take a ride every Saturday. And I just think you didn't need a $10,000 bike to go on a ride. Right. And they tell me how it's, it's lighter, you know, cause I just have this old steel frame and they tell me how it's lighter. And I think, well, so what were you in tour de France or something? Like, right, right. Who are you racing against? This is just you against you. So, you know, anyway, yeah, it's just an excuse to consume, isn't it? Yeah. And it, um, it, it kind of gets in the way of the, the quality of, you know, whatever, whatever you're trying to create. I think it's, if something's good, it's good. And you can always, you know, improve down the road. But, um, yeah, I think just, yeah. just having this, having consumption be an obstacle to starting or creating is certainly a negative thing. Hey, in fact, we could just define it as the enemy. (laughs) Buying things, saying you need to buy something before making something. That's just another enemy to attack. Well, you're making me think of the the concept of resistance and Stephen Pressfield. I, I love, I just, having that as this enemy that needs to be destroyed and killed. I just, that yep. really resonated with me. So consumption yeah. is the new enemy. Same here. How this is actually, this is a question I'm particularly interested in. So how does not being an expert, how does not being an expert help with creativity? Um, I kind of, disagree with the question. Um, (laughs) well, because if you flip that, okay. So what I hear is how does not being an expert help? So then what I hear in that is that being an expert would hurt. So being an expert doesn't hurt, right? Like a linguist knows how to creatively play with grammar better than someone who's never studied word order or suffixes. And in the same way, I think a trained musician knows from experience which chord never follows this one. And therefore, they know how to make music that's deliberately, surprisingly unique. So then if you flip it back to your question, I think that not being an expert doesn't help. I mean, most, in fact, I think just off the top of my head as I'm imagining this, I think most non-experts don't have the confidence or the swagger yet to know how much they can play or to know the different spectrums that they can play with. Um, and yes, I mean, there are role models like Jean-Michel Basquiat, this painter uh, in the 80s that had this massive creativity that seems to be unrestrained by training. So I'm guessing that's kind of where you're going with that question, but I think that that's more of an exception that, um, in general, I think the more you learn, the better. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think hearing you present it that way makes total sense. And I think what I was 
what I was really kind to trying to kind of discover is it's, I think it's more of an open-mindedness approach versus being an expert, an expert that is open-minded should be more creative and come to better conclusions than a non-expert that's open-minded. And just in my, in my personal experience, you know, my background's more in human biology, but um, now getting more into manufacturing and materials and things like that, I'm just doing what seems logical and simplest and what would make sense. And in that sense, that has been beneficial. But certainly if I was an expert right. in all these things, I would come to better conclusions. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a romantic notion, the idea of the super beginner that has insights that the expert doesn't because they're looking at it with totally fresh eyes. And then there's also this kind of despicable notion of the expert that is too rigid in their ways and unable to see new solutions. So I think we, we can both picture both extremes of that spectrum, but I think those are actually probably the, uh, the exceptions more than the norm. Right. That's right. My guess. Is doing what you do a struggle? And by, by what I mean, what I mean by that is does programming, does consistently doing your five by five list, does being a dad, does writing, does having a podcast, does starting to do interview again, excuse me, does starting to do interviews again, all these things. Are these things a struggle for you or does it feel more like something that you get to do? I think if anything feels like an unnecessary struggle, but yet it's still something I want to do, well, then I'll play with it in my head until I've found a perspective that makes it okay. I've had to do that many times. I've had to make my peace with situations or people in my life that are a struggle. (laughs) But, I mean, the real answer is kind of, again, back to this idea of deep happy versus shallow happy. Usually I appreciate the struggle because of its long-term benefits, right? I mean, that's why, yeah, if lifting weights hurts, you know it has its benefits, then in a weird way you actually kind of appreciate that pain. Or I love that it's like if I've been like hiking on very hilly uh, trails for like two hours or whatever, and then my legs are kind of burning. I'm like, yeah, that's what I wanted. I wanted that burning feeling. And yes, that was a struggle. And yes, it hurts, but I want that because that's making me stronger. Um, yeah, I mean, for real, I'm, I'm always future focused on the long term results of anything. Okay. It's like I'm always, I'm not a very present focused hedonistic person. I'm always kind of looking out at the horizon. So I usually enjoy the struggle, but yeah, if it feels like unnecessary struggle, uh, that's not beneficial. Well then yeah, I either try to get rid of it or if I can't, then I try to reframe it in my head so I can appreciate it. Okay. And one thing I've noticed that there's, there's this, it's this ever growing belief kind of at least in the West, that avoiding struggle and finding the most comfort possible is what's going to lead to happiness. But there's also, on the contrary, there's another strong movement. I'd say it's maybe a little bit smaller, but there's another strong movement of people that are really getting deep into stoicism and really seeking out just hard things. So 
do you think that struggle is what creates purpose? <clears throat> well, I mean, both of those things you said are both valid approaches to life, right? Like both can work. And I'm smiling because that it's what my next book is about, the one that I'm still writing. It's called How to Live. Uh, and the idea is that you could take the easy road in life, right? Like you said, finding the most comfortable road. And you could steer towards pleasure at every fork in that road. And you could live a life or you would live a life then of shallow happiness. And shallow happy is happy. Like, it's quite good. <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with shallow happy. And then stoicism though, it says to strengthen yourself, to pessimistically prepare for a more difficult future. At least that's always been my take on it. Um, so I think that stoicism aims to create a deeper future happiness instead of a shallow present happiness. But just because I'm using words like deeper and shallow doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. I think, and the bigger point is nothing is right for everyone. Right. But as for struggle, um, no, I think struggle doesn't create purpose. Purpose helps you through struggle. Mm. Purpose keeps you looking forward at the destination instead of down at the obstacle. Again, I, I guess I've spent a lot of time on muddy trails. So I think sure, of sure. that metaphor of like, there are two ways to approach the trail. Either you could just keep your eyes always up and forward. And sometimes you might stumble for a quick second on a big rock or a route that you weren't looking at, or you could keep your head down looking at the obstacles. Um, but I think that you intentionally incorporate struggle every time you exercise or every time you eat the bowl of vegetables instead of the box of cookies <laughs> or every time you, every time you work to understand or know something that you don't understand already, that's, that's intentional struggle. Like you're choosing that struggle. Sorry, I was, I was um, studying Portuguese this morning, so that's on my mind. <laughs> um, that, that's an intentional uh, decision to incorporate struggle. Again, like the burning muscles feeling that if it hurts, that means you're doing it right. Right. Well, it's, it, it's making me think of there's almost like shallow struggle and deep struggle. There's... And I think you frame that really well with saying how having purpose will help you move through struggle. Whereas, you know, in our comfortable Western world, it's, it's easy to seek out struggle that we can easily just, you know, kind of step out of at any moment's notice. So I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to have to listen to that segment uh, a few times and really digest that. <laughs> so I wanted to go back to a little bit about consumption again. So like I said, I was a wilderness ranger for three seasons. I was a wildland firefighter for two seasons. So, you know, the outdoors and wild places are really special and important to me and have, have really shaped um, who I am. So when visiting, when I see people visiting parks and wild places, I'm concerned that there's more of this consumptive mindset that 
it's maybe not even intentional. It could be, it's seems to be more subconscious, but what is your opinion on travel as a consumptive versus creative endeavor? Hmm. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, off the top of my head, I don't think travel is creative. Um, I mean, I love travel, but you know, you sit on a plane, you go to Japan, <laughs> you visit Matsushima Bay and you look at the rock formations or you, know, you go to Istanbul and you look at the Hagia Sophia and you walk through the Grand Bazaar. Um, you see and you hear and you smell and you taste and hopefully you talk with people. Hopefully you learn and hopefully your mind is changed. But I think you could do all that from watching a movie minus the smell and taste. Um, you like, you could talk with those same people on the phone instead of in person. So was any of that creating? Like, did you create something by travel? Um, even if you headed off into nature for 10 days, just into a forest for 10 days, I don't think it's, at least by my definition, it's not creative. I think of travel is input, not output. And I think mm. I define creation, creativity, creative as output. If you're not outputting anything, it's not really creative. But okay, so on the other hand, if you take what you learned from your travels and you make something from it, then hell yeah, that's, <laughs> now that's creative. But that's not the travel itself. And because of that, I think you shouldn't let travel itself make you think you're being creative. Any idiot can go somewhere. Um, travel in itself is not impressive. But if you do something with the inputs that you got from travel, then you're being creative. But you actually have to do something. Travel itself is not creative. Right. Uh, what's your take on that? You know, for me, it's always... I've never heard somebody call travel creative before, so I was a little... Yeah. No, it's... um. I think probably the best example I could give is we did something called the Monkey Venture back in 2017, and we took nine people to an area in northern Norway called Lofoten. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's this little chain of islands above the Arctic Circle. It looks like, I mean the edge of time, the edge of the world. It's, I would highly recommend anyone listening, go visit it. But we took a group up there and I got to go out and scout the area a few months prior. And for me, it was creative in the sense of, you know, I'm thinking about how to hike to one beach and then paddleboard to the next cove over. And then we're going to go surfing at this spot and then get food here. So for me, it, it, I was, I was creating this, I guess, adventure for lack of a better word, but, um, mm. I think it's maybe just different definitions of what creativity is. So yeah, for me, I'm always looking at landscapes of how I can move through them creatively, whether it's biking, running, climbing, um, things like that. So I guess that's how I'm looking at a landscape. And then as far as like the interactions with, people, the culture, the food, all that, that to me is, um, that's almost like a secondary effect where you kind of put yourself in the situation that you don't know exactly what is going to happen, but 
you know something interesting and potentially life-changing will emerge from it. That's really cool. Um, yeah, you're right. You just brought up a kind of travel that I hadn't considered when you asked. It's like a problem-solving travel. Like, yeah, throwing yourself into northern Norway and figuring out how you're going to do such and such. That's really cool. That, yeah, you're right. That w- I would call that creative, even if it's not making something, but it is solving problems. Uh, I wonder if there's another word for that. Like, Maybe it's one of those, you know, like we have words like love and like right, <laughs> and thing right. that apply to too many things. So maybe the word creative is applied to uh, creative problem solving and, you know, molding clay into a pot. It's two very different things. But yeah. Oh, for cool. sure. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. That's a fun question. Yeah. Well, I think you nailed it. It's I, I guess hearing you say it, it's like what really attracts me is it's the problem solving in a creative way versus just creative, if that makes sense. Yeah. So one thing I was particularly interested to hear you comment on is how to change your mindset. And I know there's some things for me that they're just really easy to change my mindset towards. And it's typically exercise is one and money is another one. And there's other things that I, for whatever reason, no matter how many books I read or podcasts I listen to, I just... I don't really act in a long-term permanent way. Do you experience anything like this? Um, yeah, I can't or don't or won't change my mind about recreational drugs, including <laughs> alcohol. Um, I just have too many negative associations with it. Like I've known too many people whose lives are lessened because they give in to the escapism urge too easily. Uh, I've heard the creativity argument applied to drugs, but I don't buy it. (laughs) I I mean, I love changing my mind. Uh, It's one of my favorite things in the world is to have my mind changed or to change my mind on a subject. But with this one, I don't see any reason why I should change my mind about recreational drugs. Fair enough. Yeah, I, um, I don't have a ton of personal experience, but it was never something that for me, you know, I was I was an athlete growing up. And for me, it was always something I wasn't necessarily opposed to from a moral standpoint. I just knew, you know, especially in high school and college, I knew that adding those things to my life were not going to help with what my goals were. So that's always kind of been my approach. Exactly. Well put. When I've had people say, oh man, you really should try, you know, microdosing this and that. Oh, you know, you should read the new book by Dan Pauline. He really talks about how drugs can (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that doesn't serve any of my goals. And that's where that creativity argument came up. So he said, yeah, but it, it, it opens your mind creatively. I'm like, oh man, creativity is not, the problem for me. Like that's, I'm good there. Right, right. You know, getting things done and finished and launched is an obstacle. Coming up with ideas, God, no, that is not an obstacle. I don't, I don't see how uh, spending I, every single hour of every day is so precious to me. I try to use every hour the best I can, and so like getting high or drinking or whatever, just that falls pretty low on my to do list. <laughs> Oh, for sure. 
Well, and especially, you know, if I have a, she's 19 months old. I have a 19 month old daughter. There's another one on the way, but having kids now has just made time infinitely more precious and exactly constrained. So I, I totally hear you. Yeah. What aspects of life do you find easier and what aspects of life do you find harder to shift your mindset towards? Um, the harder, you know, just the one that I said, um, easier, I think different approaches. I often think of the metaphor of holding up a multifaceted rock, like a picture, uh, like a crystal, like if you've ever held one of those, um, you know, very complex rocks that have a crystal or a geode. I think that's what it's mm, called, like right. a geode. And you could hold it up in your hand and you could look at it from this angle and that angle from this side, it can look like a rock, but if you hold it just right, suddenly you're seeing deep inside the hole. So I think of that metaphor with life, that there's so many things that I just kind of hold up to look at from different angles. And those are fun to change my mind about because I have no sense that one is right and the, and another is wrong. So I could just kind of keep flipping and flipping and flipping it around and looking at it different ways. Right. Well, that was something I was curious to ask you was, you know, you've, I've heard you say, you know, there's, there's all these kind of contradictory and there's, there's opposites that are also true. But what, what I was struggling to work through is how do you decide or how do you choose if the opposites are true, how do you choose which one to pursue ultimately? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, well, that's just, you know, depends on what you're talking about. Sure, who you sure. are. You know? uh, I guess that's the only honest answer to that is it depends. Uh, you just run it through your goals and your situation. Um, and ultimately whatever makes you jump up and take action is I think objectively better than the thing that doesn't. We can think of things in different ways. People can make these goals like I want to run, I want to perform the Ironman competition. But if that doesn't make you jump out of your chair and start training, well then that's not a good goal. But if you say, I want to run the 5k race that's coming through town next week. And if that makes you jump out of your chair, well then that's a better goal than the Ironman, right? Like just whatever makes you take action is a good goal. Uh, right. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I tend to judge things. And sometimes only in hindsight, sometimes I'll have an idea that seems like a great idea and it takes me a while to realize like, yeah, I'm, just not taking action on that idea, no matter what happens. I seem to procrastinate that more than anything else. I think I'm going to euthanize that goal. <laughs> I'm going to put it to sleep. That was not a good goal. It didn't make me take action. Um, another approach will. So For sure. Decide. Well, I heard someone, it was a quote, it was, it was some, someone that had started a business, but they, they said you are what you did. And I thought mm. that really resonated with me in a way because I always had kind of thought I was what my thoughts were, but putting it in that perspective was like, well, 
I can think whatever I want to think, but what I actually do is what, like you're saying, that's what's really where the rubber meets the road. That's what's really. (laughs) (laughs) Rubber meets the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the real test. I mean, it's the same with politicians or religious leaders or, um, God, anybody that goes out in the public and says things like, let's just ignore all their words and just look at the actions. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, just hearing that kind of, it kind of shocked me in the sense of, gosh, like, I think, I think, I think I'm one thing, but if I were to sit down and analytically kind of line item out my actions, it would really, it probably would be a, a, a different picture. So I just, that always really resonated with me. And I, um, I've really tried to incorporate that into acting more. Nice. How do you apply the super hot and super cold mentality to life? And could you kind of maybe just give a little more context to that for someone that hasn't (laughs) dove deep into your blog? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, before we recorded, Dan told me that he had just reread my book. Uh, So so I knew what metaphor you're going for. So yes, first I'll explain the metaphor. Um, In Finland, you sit in a hot sauna until you can't stand it anymore. And then you step outside and jump into an icy lake. Like most of the saunas are right next to icy lakes. So you step outside and then you jump into an icy lake until you can't stand that anymore. And then you go back into the hot sauna until you can't stand that anymore and repeat. And in the end, doing this leaves me at least uh, more relaxed than anything I've ever done. It's the only thing that really melts every muscle. (laughs) I've tried back rubs. They do nothing for me. I tried acupuncture. It does nothing for me. Going back and forth between hot and cold. uh, Oh, my God. This is the ultimate melting. So later, I noticed that it's similar to my approach to life, that I really liked to do one thing at a time until I can't stand it anymore. And then I'll switch and do something else to an extreme until I can't stand it anymore. And some friends say that I should be more balanced, but maybe I'm taking the longer view. Like we say balance is important, right? For sure. But I don't think we rarely, I don't think we question Exactly what that means. Like, can you imagine if we tried to micro balance every minute (laughs) and every minute you would do 10 seconds of exercise, 10 seconds of learning, 10 seconds of creating, have 10 seconds of sex, and then have 20 seconds of sleep. And that's how you spent every minute of the day. Well, no, that's ridiculous, right? That's just a thought experiment to show that balancing every minute is ridiculous. Well, so where do you draw the line? Do you balance every hour and every hour you have a little exercise and a little learning and a little sleep? Well, okay. Do we, you know, every half day, every, so we tend to draw the line at every day. People say, I'm going to try to balance my day. But sometimes you can't do that. Like you said, you're going to go up to Norway for a week. Well, then that was an unbalanced week. So do we need to balance every week or is it fine if we balance every month? And as long as we're zooming out, like, why not just keep your years balanced? So anyway, I don't micro balance every day or every week or even every month, but in the long run over years, uh, I think my approach of going extremely hot 
and extremely cold all balances out. And in the short run, the extremes become an exciting adventure. Well, what you're, ma- what you're making me think of is, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure this is something you'd said, but you talked about like there's these 30-year-olds, these 30-somethings, which I am, I'm 34, I'm a full-on 30-something, but they want to do everything all at once. And your, your kind of take was, well, why not just do one thing for five years, totally focused? You're going to live for, you know, I mean, we'll, <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation, but our, uh, <laughs> Let's see, yeah, you live for 50 years anyway, yeah. you have another 50 years, like use it, use that future. Right. And I think you, you can, you could be super hot or super cold for these chunks of five years, whatever, exhaust that energy and then move on to the next endeavor. So I, yeah. I, I love that. And I've certainly gone through that in my personal life. I love it with lifestyle choices, you know, like I love that I lived in Manhattan smack in the middle of Union Square, New York City for a number of years. And then I went off to rural New Zealand for a number of years. And then I lived in Singapore on the 51st floor of a building where I could see Indonesia and Malaysia out my window. Uh, And I love that I did that for a couple of years. And then now I'm living in cute, intellectual little Oxford, England for a few years. And I just, yeah, I love doing things for a few years at a time and taking a certain approach. Um, And yeah, I think it leads to more adventures than trying to constantly live some kind of monotonously balanced life for life. Right. Well, and when we were talking about the struggle purpose thought, what it was making me think of is, and now going to the super hot, super cold, what I was thinking of is, this was also in 2017, I'd climbed, um, uh, it's called El Capitan, it's in Yosemite National Park. I'd climbed that, and my wife and I went backpacking for a week, and then we went to Italy. And so it was this very extreme contrast from like total physical suffering, you know, being dehydrated, getting giardia, all these things to, you know, enjoying fine Italian food along the Mediterranean coast. So, but, but both having both juxtaposed like that, I think made me enjoy each one more. Um, And, you know, going on to the, moving on to the super hot, super cold now, having, having just one, having both together, I guess, is better than having just one or the other, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I think a lot of people, try to stay in the middle. They don't want to go to extremes, but, um, yeah, for me, I think it's just my preference. It's my personality, right? Um, I tend to have a very one track mind. I get really into one thing at a time, almost obsessed. And I want to dive in completely. Uh, I don't like switching tasks every few hours. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's better for others. Some people are very good at, uh, short attention spans and doing something for just two hours and then switching and something else for a few hours and then switching. And you do that five times a day and Hey, look at you. You've, you know, you've kind of ticked five aspects, ticked the boxes in five aspects of your life in one day. But, uh, that's just not my nature, Sure, which is fine. Why do you think that life wants to steer us towards this comfortable level of warmth just in the middle? I don't think it's life as much as uh, the fact that most people are more comfortable in moderation Mm. and most people tell us to do what they would do. 
because that helps them feel better about their choices in life. So, yeah, I think that's just people telling us things, not life. Okay, fair enough. No, I think I agree with that. There's always, I've always found it interesting, this kind of, um, this, this human nature of folks wanting to bring you into their world or do, do tell you to do what they're doing. Um, yeah. I always found that interesting. Yeah. A, a more literal crest, uh, excuse me, a more literal question is, do you regularly do hot and cold exposure as part of your routine? <laughs> this is like the theme of our conversation. I love it. I started out <laughs> telling you about the dream that I woke up with this morning. This is like my hot versus cold day. Uh, no, I wish. Um, I mean, there was probably a reason I woke up longing for that. Um, I used to live next to a health club that had the icy cold tub and the super hot tub right next to each other in the men's locker room. And I used to go there every day and I loved to go back and forth between them. You know, I just sit in a hot tub until I couldn't stand it. And then I get in the icy tub and it was like, you know, like seriously like 34 degrees or something. And so you'd get in and just God, every muscle would just go. <laughs> you just, you do that like gasping thing and you just make myself stay there. Like reminding myself that I'm not in danger. I'm not going to die, but Oh God, this is hard. And you just make myself stay in there. And then till I couldn't stand it. And I just go right back to the hot tub and, 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 but no, I wish, uh, I don't know of any place I can do that now. Um, <laughs> I've tried doing it in the shower, but it's not the same. No, no, not even close. Yeah. It's, it's, it's generally, I found it's generally easy to find one or the other. I can go jump in the snow, but there's no, <laughs> there's no hot to go back into. So I feel you. Yeah. If I, you know, it's funny, it total weird tangent. Spending the money to make a hot tub and cold tub in my backyard is not something I would do, even though I've told you how much I love it. Right. It just, it just seems ridiculously luxurious and excessive and unnecessary for me. But if somebody bought it for me, I would thoroughly enjoy that. Mm. <laughs> uh, and what, the reason I said it's a tangent is because the best present I ever got. Uh, I'm a hard guy to buy presents for because I don't want anything. But knowing that my friend Ariel, who's a publicist, um, one year I sent her a lot of business a long time ago and uh, she loves me anyway. And she wanted to thank me. And so uh, she gave me a $500 gift certificate to Nobu Sushi in Los Angeles, where I was living at the time. And as much as I love sushi, there is no way in hell I would ever go spend $500 on a dinner. But the fact that Ariel gave me this gift certificate, well, now I had to go spend $500 right. on dinner. And so I did, and it was amazing, and I loved it. And so that ended up being a perfect present because I never would have got that for myself, but I did actually want it and enjoy it. So yeah, that's how I feel about, uh, having a hot tub and cold tub in my backyard. I would never spend my own money on that, but damn, I would love it if I did. <laughs> I think I, uh, totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting to education. So I, I mentioned this earlier. I have an 18 month old daughter and 
my wife's pregnant. She's due May 2nd. So she's actually at the doctor's right now getting checked out. But wow. And uh, just a little side note for both of our kids, we did not know the sex until they emerged into the world, which, you know, there's so little right. mystery in life. It was, it was a really fun thing for us. But for them, one thing I've been thinking about a ton is just education and what, what's their education going to be like? How is it going to change during their lifetime? And I also think about how I might do the opposite or at least things differently from how I was educated. And I wanted to ask you, Derek, how much longer do you think the current education system will be relevant? Oof. Um, okay, I only have one kid and he's eight. So this is my perspective so far. It's I think that we shouldn't place too much importance on school. Um, don't expect school to educate your children. Like Nobody can really teach you anything. Everyone has to spend the effort to learn. So I think most of that effort won't be spent while in the classroom. It'll be at home when focused. So I think of school as just a place to practice people skills. Um, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, which is a pretty famous school, but I was so disappointed in the teachers that I almost dropped out after the first year. <laughs> I went back home to Hinsdale, Illinois, where I grew up for that first summer, and I thought about it, and I, was, I considered myself dropped out. I didn't think I was going to go back. But then I realized that the school wasn't going to teach me anything that I had to learn for myself. So I went back with a renewed vigor and I treated it like a library. I said, okay, this whole school is just a resource. This is a place that I could go learn from. Then once I expected nothing of the school and expected everything of myself, well then, then I thrived and I loved it. Like I, I, I really, really loved my experience there once I changed my expectations. So I think if I was 18 now, there would be no need for me to go to Berkeley College of Music, that the internet itself is the best resource that has everything. And as for your kids, um, I mean, if you're just, you know, you, Dan, asking me directly, I think that you'll know what to do when it's time because... It sounds to me like you care more than most people do. I think most people don't even question it. They just say, well, you know, you just put the kids in school. Let's just try to live near a good school district and just send the kids to school and that's what will educate them. But no, I think if you change your expectations and you realize that really most of the education is going to happen at home, no matter where your kid goes to school or if your kid goes to school, then it, you lower your expectations for the school system itself. Right. When there, there's this, I don't even know if pressure is the right, right word, but there's just, you know, we've, we've got a handful of friends that live locally and everyone's like, oh, we should all put our kids in the same school and we'll, we'll go do this. And I just, I just don't know if that's the right path, one for her and for us as parents, you know? So it's just, it's, it's something I think about a lot and I just, I don't have a great answer yet, but you know, my wife actually, she's, um, she, is a teacher. So it's, it's good to get her perspective as well, but cool. 
I recently I read your article recently the of the idea of this mastery school, which I loved and maybe we might want to give a little context on that, but how do you see that fitting in specifically for kids? Um, hmm. Okay. So the mastery school idea, to be fair, it was just like a, a little one hour idea I had. This isn't like a massive focus of mine, but just one day I found myself thinking like, how cool would it be if there was a place that, kind of like I did enjoy my experience at Berkeley College of Music once I went back um, because it was a good place to go away and focus on nothing but music. But now imagine that a bunch of learners uh, focused on their thing felt it useful to go away to some remote place free of distractions, surrounded by other ambitious people. So there might be a painter there, a musician there, a writer there, an acrobat there, whatever it might be. This is a place that the big idea is all of the materials you need to learn from are now online. The best teachers in the world are online. So the reason it would help you to go to a place is if you had, uh, I guess you could call them teachers or um, guide guiders <laughs> at that place. It would help guide you on the mastery path to no matter what you're studying. Um, cause there are people that are good at that. Like even if, you know, your goal is to be a chess master, you could go to this place and be somebody who's never played chess, but, uh, perhaps was a tennis expert themselves could guide you on your chess journey, um, to help keep you focused and guide you on the mastery path. Okay, so that's the idea of a mastery school. It's just a little one-hour idea that I hadn't posted. But the big idea is that I think that the skill of learning and the skill of mastery can develop independently of whatever you're learning or mastering. So that's why learning music is so useful. Learning music teaches mastery. It teaches practice. And if you can learn music, you can learn anything. So I think no matter what your kid gets fascinated with just encourage them on the mastery path even if it's just skateboarding or dancing or acting or whatever i think in learning how to be great at it they'll learn how to be great at anything else too right so they're they're essentially learning how to learn anything in a way yes um there's a funny thing that happened sorry i'm just gonna indulge in myself for a second um that um, ever since I was 14, I was just massively driven that I wanted to be a successful musician. And I can see how my dad, who was a particle physicist, could have been quite disappointed with that decision of mine. Like, because it wasn't even like I was hoping to be like a great classical musician or something respectable. I was just like a long hair rocker dude playing really fast guitar solos but it was my obsession, right? But the thing is, when I look back at my teenage self, um, the fact that I was pursuing music so in such a focused way shaped everything else I did in life, right? And I feel bad for all these people I met meet that never had anything like that. They never had any focus. They've just been drifting through life lost. 
They're not good at anything. They never learned how to master anything. They just don't know what to do with themselves. And they sit around watching shows and playing games because they just, they don't have anything. Um, so I think, yeah, it's focusing so much on making music, on being the best musician I could be later made me a good business person or later made me a good programmer or later made me a good writer. Um, it just taught me how to focus and how to improve and how to learn. Right. Well, I, I have a very, um, elementary level of understanding of physics, but from the very little, I do know you, you sound like you would have the perfect mindset to be a physicist because there's so many contradictory truths in a way. You know what I mean? I've honestly never studied it for one second. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe because it was my dad's field. Sure. I don't know. I've never even looked into it. One thing I want to bring up real quick was, I, and excuse me, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but I think it was on Tim Ferriss's podcast. You'd mentioned a gentleman that kind of mentored you. Timo Williams. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That made me think of, you know, kind of maybe pre-industrial revolution. Wasn't this kind of apprenticeship model a more common way people were educated? Or at least if you wanted to be, you know, a blacksmith or if you wanted to be a painter, you would seek out a mentor as an apprentice and you'd go through this very deep focused, I guess, for lack of a better word, mastery school. I think that's still going on. Um, Maybe it just looks a little different than it used to, but like from what I understand, if somebody wants to become a professional counselor, that yes, they go take a couple years of school in it, but then I think they have to put in like a thousand hours of kind of teacher's assistant or kind of mm. assistant counseling type work. So I think that that maybe that's just how our um, apprenticeship model looks these days. It's been a little more formalized instead of the the journeyman heading off <laughs> right. to, uh, to sit outside the blacksmith's door. I think it's just, this is how it looks these days. Um, like med school, right? Like you can't just, it's not like you graduate medical school and then the next day you're a doctor. I think you have to put in a number of years. Um, hang on. Did your wife have to do that with teaching? Don't teachers have to kind of put in a number of hours as like assistant teachers before yeah. they're allowed to. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Alone with- Actually <laughs> hearing you, Hearing you say this, it's like, oh yeah, it totally is still, we just call it something else now. Yeah. When, as I I mentioned earlier that, you know, I'd spent a lot of time in the outdoors and particularly in the wilderness, but from those experiences, I kind of distinguish wilderness from wildness. So I wanted to ask you, what does wildness Hmm. mean to you? (laughs) Uh, The natural state? Like, I don't know, when I think of animals, I think of not tame, not domesticated. If I think of, I think of plants, wildness would mean like not cultivated, or for places it would mean uninhabited. And for people, um, <laughs> uncivilized. <laughs> I guess there's a lot of uns there, right? Like the natural state means from our viewpoint that, hasn't been uh, cultivated and tamed. But I guess wildness to me also means out of control, like running wild, being a wild man, uh, no restraint, 
like <laughs> maybe in fact resisting control, right? Like if you think of a, a night of wild passion, that means you're not <laughs> holding back. You're not restrained. Um, but then that leads into a meaning of going crazy. Uh, like let's say the, if we say that the weather or the ocean is wild, we mean that it's tempestuous and turbulent. But if we say that a person is going wild, we usually mean that they're like kind of violently excited, right? Like wild eyes, they're being fierce or ferocious. Um, yeah, sorry, that's what comes to mind for wild. Okay. And so to follow up on that, how I would frame it is, do you think it's important for humans to be wild? And if so, why? For humans to be wild. No, I don't think it's important. Um, well, nothing's important unless you feel it could improve your life. Right? Like, let's flip that around. Some people say that a morning routine is important. <laughs> they want to know, what should my morning routine be? But that's maybe because their life is too chaotic and needs more control. But for me, a morning routine is not important at all. But I could imagine that somebody's feeling too controlled, too tamed, too domesticated, too restrained. So that person would feel that being wild would improve their life. So yeah, if you feel that being wild, more wild would improve your life, if you're feeling too domesticated, then yeah, it's important for you. Um, and you can preach it and you can say why and how being wild helped you. And then maybe others will hear your wolf call and feel that this is what they need too. But yeah, some people could benefit more from a morning routine. Um, sorry, my, my answers on this are always, you know, the kind of like, well, it depends who you are, <laughs> which is less fun. I wish I had a uh, ultra simple answer that would say, no, this is for everyone, but I don't. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm particularly laughing because we have a, uh... We have something called the monkey oath. And at the end of it, uh, in three days time, a lone wolf appears in your dreams. So the wolf call. <laughs> Maybe that's why I said that. Yeah. I was on your site earlier. Maybe that's that idea was in my head. Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh, man. Um, no, I totally get what you're saying because it, it would be probably poor advice to just proclaim that every single person should go about and be as wild as they possibly can, whereas some people may already be on that extreme. So... It's certainly right. circumstantial. So, no, I, I, I appreciate you uh, framing it that way. Last question on the wild topic is, do you think it's important for people to experience wild places? And if so, why? Ooh. <laughs> now that, I think, is good for everyone. Yes, every single person on earth <laughs> does need that despite what I just said 10 seconds ago, <laughs> uh, because it reminds you what's real and what's not. Um, the example that comes to mind is in 2016, everyone was freaking out about the American presidential election. And I was just off in the New Zealand wilderness with my kid, <laughs> like no phone, no computer, and I just mean in general, I don't mean, I'm not referring to a specific day or week. I just mean like that whole year, we would just 
every morning when he'd wake up, we'd eat a little bit of food and just throw on some clothes and just head out uh, and just stay out all day. Just watching the waves crash against the rocks like they have been for a million years. And we would just make castles out of shells and we'd chase the birds and play with little creatures in rock pools. And I was so thankful to not be in that drama storm online. You know, like I can understand why people get all worked up about what they see on the news. You know, we, we have brains. We predict. <laughs> we predict disaster or we predict fortune. And then we react to the images in our head. And we're social. Like we're affected by what others say. And so we share this outrage because we want the camaraderie of somebody feeling the same outrage we're feeling. But when you step away from all of that completely and you just shut it off, like you turn off all those damn devices, like this is not the real world. That's a device that's beaming light into your eyes. And then ideally, if you go away from all people and you go off into the wild, well, then yeah, like I said earlier, to me, the wild represents like the natural state, undomesticated, uninhabited, uncivilized. Then by definition, that means free from human influence. Which then I guess means it's controlled only by the laws of nature, right? Like the circle of life and other forces that remind us that the world was here before us and will be here after us. And I really love this feeling that nature doesn't need us at all. Like, we're not that important. I love, I heard a year or two ago, somebody reframed this idea of, instead of saying save the world, we should say, yeah, save humanity when we say save the planet, because the world's going to do just fine without us. It will take some centuries to go back to the way it was if we all died tomorrow. But yeah, the world's just fine. Um, Humanity will suffer if we keep polluting. But Whatever a media outlet is trying to make you upset about today, it's a nice reminder that it's not the real world. Like the real world is waves on rocks and wind in trees and gravity and erosion and photosynthesis and such. Uh, but that said, I am actually glad that not everyone feels this way. Because if the whole world just went off into the wilderness, well, then some evil people <laughs> would do some really evil things without any opposition. So I'm actually glad that there are some people that are fighting the fight to protect human rights against predicted disasters. And I'm glad that enough people are upset about the news to go do something about it and make change for the better. But yeah, I do think everybody should go off into the wild and experience nature without humanity, without human influence. Oh, absolutely. And the last, the last, my real last long-term stint was I hiked a trail called the John Muir Trail. It was my Mm. pre-baby spirit quest, but I hadn't, I hadn't spent an extended time like that for a few years and it really made me realize how much rumination I was doing and how being out in the wild again, it really made me focus on my just immediate actions and how, 
how calming that was. Um, and it, and it, yeah. it's, it's not like I didn't have, like you talked about before, I, it, it didn't eliminate these future daydreams or anything like that. It just, I think it eliminated the maybe tension and potential anxiety around those things. So it's, um, it, it, but it was very, very obvious after, you know, a little bit of an extended time away from at least that long-term immersive experience in the wild. Cool. I'm sorry. How long was that? The John Muir? Uh, time or length? Uh, time. How long were you I on it? I spent nine days on the trail. Um, cool. Long, longest I've done is five days. I did the uh, Milford Sound or the Milford Track in New Zealand. And oh, that's nice. Like okay. Five days. They just they just tell you like there's no reception in here anyway. Just leave your devices. Right. Um, and we'll be, we'll be back in five days. Yeah, it's in, you know it's hard to um, as the world grows. It's I really appreciate these areas where you can still get truly off the grid. So hopefully that will remain at least in some pockets yeah. in the world. Yeah. Unlearning. So one thing mm-hmm. I've always appreciated about you is you can essentially just t- radically and extremely change your life. You can wipe the slate clean. And I wanted to ask, do you have any specific tactics for erasing bad habits? And again, just wiping the slate clean, starting over fresh. I think you just put aside private time to reflect. Uh, It has to be private, like in a journal, so that you're not following the social impulse to defend your point of view. Even with your friends, I find that I... Given that once I hold a certain view on something, if I'm in a social situation, I may defend that point of view. But if I'm in my diary, my journal, uh, then I actually love flipping it. So take something you believe and work through how it could be wrong. Like work through how you could believe the opposite which usually involves like what other things underneath that would you need to believe in order to now believe this opposite point of view that you held. And so then if you land on a new belief, but your belief is fragile, then my next bit of advice is to find some wise inputs, whether books or videos or whatever from smart people who believe this new thing because they've probably thought about it more and can give you a better foundation of surrounding ideas to help support it, right? Like if you go from being an omnivore to being vegan or vice versa, you know, that's, you'll probably need to stack up some new evidence and new beliefs to help you strongly believe that new point of view. Um, yeah, going from like aerobics to weightlifting or from stock picking to passive investing. <laughs> you know, there are these things that you could change your worldview on a certain subject. But um, yeah, you're going to need more supporting evidence to kind of strengthen these. But no matter what it is, there's always somebody who's already in this belief system that's new to you to look for the wise voices that are already preaching that new way um, and hear what they have to say um, because they've probably thought about it more. Right. Right. Well, 
I know this is certainly true for myself, but when you're, when you're attached to a belief or at least you're letting it define you because you've said it out loud or, you know, it's something that you held strongly in the past and maybe new evidence has emerged to contradict that, it's hard to attach your personal subjective self from this objective idea. It's hard. It's really hard to uncouple those. So that to me is, is what, what, what I'm hearing you say and what seems to be a struggle for yeah, a lot of people. It's, but it's one of the best feelings when something that you used to hate, you now love or something that used to seem so, you know, not me is now me. That's an amazing feeling. It's just, I love that. Like expanding your sense of self. It's such a great feeling. Right. Gosh. Yeah. That's uh hearing you say that it's like, Oh yeah, that's, there's certainly things that I used to totally not be into or like at all that I'm now, you know, full on into. So gosh, that's, I haven't heard it framed <laughs> like to, that. <laughs> I used to actively make fun of weightlifters. I used to think it was like one of the stupidest things people could do, lifting pieces of metal. What the hell is that? And then after enough people told me that it's actually good for your skeleton and other health benefits, that no, it's not just for vanity. That's a different kind of thing. That's bodybuilding, which is different than power lifting, which is different. And then I said, okay, all right. So I tried to have an open mind and I went down to the local gym, which luckily the, the guy that ran a gym was actually a, um, it was actually, it's a, um, free weight only gym, oh, cool. basically just a powerlifting gym. Nice. And he showed me how to do the moves right. And I really loved it. I was like, Whoa, this is really cool. This is one of my favorite exercise things I've ever done. Uh, and then I just had to laugh like, all right, look at me. I'm like lifting weights now every you know, three times a week. And I'm into it exactly. You know, this is the exact kind of thing that I used to think was incredibly stupid a year ago. And here I am enjoying it. That's a great feeling. Well, yeah, and I thought it was, I looked at your now page and I thought it was particularly interesting that you had mentioned that you were doing, you were doing weightlifting. Cause I just, in my head, I'm like, well, Derek doesn't seem like the type of person that would just put up something that wasn't at least somewhat important in their life. So, um, that's really interesting to see, or I, I appreciate you sharing how that all came to be. Oh yeah. It, it's not, um, I lift weights like most people like go jogging. Sure, you know? sure. Like I just do it three times a week. I don't even really think about it. I tend to just put on like an album. My a typical workout for me is like about forty five minutes, and the typical album of pop music is about forty five minutes. So like you know, yesterday I just listened to Fiona Apple's new album while doing my routine. I just uh, yeah, I'm not a um, fanatic about it. It's just something that I just do, and I'm glad I do. Sure. So, I. I really only know you from reading your books, reading your articles, listening to you on different podcasts. And from all that information, I've deduced that you're an extremely disciplined person. <laughs> would, you, would you describe yourself as a disciplined person or would you describe yourself as being disciplined? No, just focused. Um, discipline to me has like an underlying etymological definition of punishment. Right? or of you know, like molding the mind and character through discipline. But um, I'm not that disciplined. I think I just tend to remove things from my reach instead of mastering discipline, right? Like I don't keep cookies in the house and I shut off the internet when I'm writing. Uh, but still, yeah, like if you leave a box of cookies open near me, it's gone before I realize <laughs> what I've done. 
So no, I'm not a very disciplined person, but I am focused. Well, hearing you say that, it's like discipline sounds like it has a lot of friction involved with it where you're sitting there like, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to need it. Or why do I, or you're, <laughs> or on the contrary, when you're acting being like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it anyways. That, that to me, right? like you're saying is more dis- Whereas to me, you're jumping out of bed and doing, you're focusing on these things that you're excited about and happen to be very productive and useful for both yourself and a lot of people. Exactly. That's just doing what I want to do. And I do have the occasional little bit of, um, you know, sitting down to finish something that I don't really want to do, but I need to do it in order to finish. And I just make, I, I kick and scream and complain and then I do it. Um, but yeah, I guess we all have to do some things like that. For sure. So I could ask you a lot of questions and I think this would be a great one to kind of wrap up on. And I, I reread this article last night and this morning, but we'll probably need to give folks just a little bit of context. But the question is, when in life do you think it's appropriate to apply the art of selfishness? Ah, the art of selfishness. Um, I think I'm going to answer your question with, a different book recommendation. So The Art of Selfishness is an ancient book. Uh, I forget what year. It was like 1930s or 50s or something. But read the book called The Courage to Be Disliked. It is the best book I've read in the last two years. And it's sharing the philosophy of Alfred Adler, who was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. But in this book, one of his main points is that we should always ask, whose task is this? Meaning, who's going to ultimately receive the result of this? Um, And then he says that all interpersonal relationship troubles are caused by intruding on someone else's tasks or having your own tasks intruded upon. And he says that you shouldn't intervene in other people's tasks or allow anyone to intervene in your own tasks. So saying selfish makes it sound bad, but minding my own business or taking care of my own tasks, I think is a more digestible perspective on this. Um, Yeah, sorry. I just had this in my mind because an hour before we spoke, a friend of mine from Australia called and was telling me her work situation about something that was just right up this alley about this, <laughs> like somebody else was trying to dump their tasks on her. Uh, and yeah, we were just talking about that. So yeah, the courage to be disliked, highly, highly, highly recommend that book. It's so good. Well, even the title, just, just hearing the title, it's like that in itself is kind of this, you know, one sentence directive to, to steal a word from you, but hearing that's like, okay, well that makes total sense. Well, I think actually the title is deceiving. Um, inside the book, he has like 20 different great points. And this thing about being disliked is like one of the minor points. I don't know why Mm. they chose that as the title. I think actually this thing that I just said about, uh, the tasks that like really like all interpersonal relationship troubles come down 
to this idea of what's your task versus what's somebody else's task and delineating. Um, that say that's most of what that's the book. That's the book's biggest point. So, um, yeah, sorry. This was all a way of answering your question about <laughs> selfishness. That that yes, there is a book out there called The Art of Selfishness, but I think that this newer book called The Courage to Be Disliked addresses it better. Okay, well, that I will definitely put in the show notes. And again, I could I could uh, fill up this SD card and probably a dozen others going through questions, but <laughs> I. I just um, I just want to say on on the show that you know Derek's been a huge influence for me. I've read a ton of his books, his articles. Really dove deep in the podcast he's been on. So I'm uh, just very grateful that he took the time to talk with me today and answer the questions from my monkey mind. So thank you so much, Derek. I, I, I'm I'm grateful. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Thanks. You asked some really really fun questions. Uh, it was really fun to dive into the subject. So thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks again, Derek. Stay wild, everyone. <laughs>